All right, we're going to go back to 1988. To uh, it probably wasn't a sunny afternoon, but it was at Waverley Park. It was the fourth of April. It was uh, just on 19,000 people at uh, at Waverley to watch uh, Footscray take on Sydney. And a man who was making his debut that day was Mark Hunter, the first of 130 games for the doggies. Hello, Mark. How are you? G'day, Kev. I think it was a sunny day, actually, that uh, that day out at Waverley. Uh, what are your recollections of, of uh, the morning, waking up and uh, sort of realising that at 22 years of age you're going to make your, your debut in the big time? Yeah, look, I, I remember going out to the game with a couple of mates in the car and I uh, tried, to, tried to get some sleep on the way out in the car and it didn't work. I was just all nervous and... Uh, yeah. You know, I think I'd spent all my chips before. I started on the bench the day, but I, I think I'd spent all my chips even before I ran on the ground for the warm-up. What uh, What was the lead-up? Was it a, was it a big kind of uh, lead-up for you, or did you know early in pre-season that you were going to be right for the first game and that you'd get picked? No, it was my first year down there. Um, and pre-season, I played in a few senior practice matches. And I don't really remember, but I reckon I got called in early in the week and they said, well, you you're going to play your first game this weekend. So, yeah, it was, it was as you say, round one back in April here in 998. A long time ago, but I reckon Mick Mulder gave me the heads up early in the week. How did uh, how'd you get to the Doggies? Because you, uh, you played suburban footy at Melton, and, uh, and um, uh, my memory is, in conversations I've had with different people, that Gordon Casey had a bit to do with you back in those Melton days. Yeah, I was up at uh, Melton in 86 and 87, and Gordon Casey and Butch Edwards were there, and that's, that's how I think '87 um, had a pretty good year. '87 and Case and Butch recommended me down to the Bulldogs, and I think I had an invite down from North Melbourne and also Footscray, and I was in pretty ordinary physical shape. And Footscray started training nine days before North Melbourne, so I figured I needed all the training I could get in. <laughs> so um, yeah, I went down for Footscray's pre-season training. At 22 years of age, making your debut, I mean, by today's standards, that's called a mature uh, recruit. Um, did you did you miss the boat as a young bloke, or was it just not not the right time for you, or things didn't fall into place for you, or what happened? No, I was, I was Geelong in um, 84, 85. I played a year under 19 in Geelong in 84. Uh, 85, went up to the reserves, actually got picked in a senior practice match at the start of the year, and I... I knocked it back to play because the cricket team was playing for Melton in the cricket and they were in the semi-final. So I knocked back the senior practice match. Oh, 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 oh. Didn't, didn't go down well with Tommy Hafey. Uh, oh, so go back and play in the uh, the cricket, the semi-final for Melton. So I played the first five games in the reserves for Geelong and had shocking back pain. I just couldn't get rid of it. And it was misdiagnosed. So they gave me, they told me to have basically 12 weeks off. So I had 12 weeks off, came back and tried to play and, my back was no better, and I played a couple of those Army Reserve Cup games, and I just uh, couldn't train, couldn't run, and it was getting worse and worse, and then got diagnosed with uh, stress fractures of the spine. Oh. So that was the end of that year, and pretty much half of the next year, 80, uh, yeah, 86 was pretty much half of 86 as well. So I don't remember if they had lists or whatever they had there, but I got you know let go at the end of 85 with a back injury this half of 86 and went and played the last half of the year at Melton in 86. Uh, so when you went down to the doggies, um, uh, obviously the, the, you, you must have been at the back of the line when they were handing out jumpers because you got number 44, which I don't think had been used in a game for about 10 years before you grabbed it at the start of 88. Well, it could have been worse. Scotty Wine had, uh, what do you have, 50, 52, did he, Scotty yeah, Wine? Something like that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Magic McQueen, 51. So I guess I wasn't that bad. I've had Matty Hogg there, number 43. So I think the 40s did okay that year. 
Well, you and Matty made your debut that day. Yeah, yeah, 43, 44, Troy Maloney, 40. Um, I can't remember all the other numbers. Oh, Michael Ford, 45. So, yeah, there, there are a few along that, that part of the bench in the locker room that uh, managed to play seniors. And that, that day, not only was it you and Matthew Hogg's uh, debut game, but it was uh, Terry Wallace's first game for the Bulldogs. Yeah, Plough, I remember, yes, I remember that one well, and also the one that may have been the week after when, um, you know, when he got bowled over, I was on the bench that day, and and he had his jaw broken out at the Witten Oval, or Western Oval, and he came off the ground, you know, not in a very good state, <laughs> I was the one that went on the ground, so, yeah, he was a fantastic player for us, Plough, he just didn't have much luck that day at the Western Oval. When uh, when you made your debut uh, at Waverley, um, um, was there was there a sense that you that you'd made it? Did you feel like yeah, this is I'm I'm up for this, or did you still feel like a suburban footballer at an AFL club? Probably a suburban footballer at an AFL club. Just went down and did the pre-season and um, yeah, managed to get a spot actually in the forward line. Believe it or not, for that, uh, that first game, come off the bench and played in the forward line. And I think you look around, you see your Hawkins and your Kennedys and your Fosters and you know, such big, big names that you you just uh, slink into the corner and do your best when you get a chance. Well, I was going to ask you about that because your stats for that first game are pretty good. Ten kicks, one mark, two handballs, two tackles. But, yeah, the thing that, that immediately caught my eye that I hadn't remembered was one goal and one behind. What were you yes. doing in the forward line? What, 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 did you play forward as a kid or what, why were you up forward? Uh, I pretty much played on the ball up, up the bush, played on the ball and yeah. spent a fair bit on forward as well and, and came down and... Yeah, played the practice matches as, as a half forward flanker there for Mick Early Doors. Um, and I started on the bench, came on about the 23 minute mark of the second quarter. And I think I can't remember if I kicked the goal in the first half or the, or the third quarter, but it, it was a bit lucky. It just dribbled through the pack and landed right at my feet. And I just dribbled it over the line from about one meter out. So. Not even I could miss that one, but it was just good to get one on the board. <laughs> it was a pretty even game too. It was, uh, there was only a point in it up until uh, three-quarter time and then uh, then the Doggies kicked uh, six goals in the last quarter to two goals to uh, to run away with it in the end by 30-odd points. But nice to, uh, nice to get your first game under your belt and a win. It was, yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, if you only ever play one game, at least you've played one game. And it was great to get that under my belt and also, as you say, get the win on the board, which um, I don't think we had that much joy in. 88, 89, but it was certainly good to start the season off with a win. Now, the bloke who was running around in the jumper that finished up being yours, which was number 10, because you wore the 44 for that year and played uh, the rest of your career in the number 10, uh, was a bloke called Russell Shields who kicked five goals that day and kicked uh, seven goals in his career at the Doggies and played three games. Yeah, we, were, we had also, you remember Johnny Georgiard as well, and I think he might have been 89, John Georgiard, eight, two and five, mainly yeah. his first three games, and... Uh, yeah, Russell Shields, he come on the scene and then um, probably disappeared just as quickly from the dogs. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the number 10, obviously, uh, Gordon Casey, I mentioned, uh, wore that number at the doggies and obviously had something to do with you up at, uh, up at Melton in the, in the coaching part of it. Well, no, nice to get that number 10 and run around and have that as your number over uh, the 140 and odd, I think, 116 games you played in the number 10. Yeah, 14 games first year in number 44. And in our case, uh, Mick Egan, a couple of back pockets there. It was good. Good. Uh, there's one other, one other on the locker who I forget right now. But, um, you know, a case and I had Mick Egan was runner there while I was at the club as well. And and to uh, come through Melton with Case, it was certainly good to get number 10 on the board. Now, who uh, who gave you the – did you come with the Kenny nickname or did you get that when you got to the Doggies? No, that was the Doggies one, I think. I'll have a go with Darren Collins, I reckon. It might have been Darren Collins, I think. Um, 
yeah, you know, the obvious Kenny Hunter from Carlton, so not yep. too imaginative, but um, that's about Colo's standards of humour, so <laughs> that's, that's, that's what he came up with. Well, Leon Baker, uh, Leon Baker, exactly, Leon Cameron, who affectionately became known as Baker when he arrived there in 88, 89, the similar sort of thing, and just grabbed a player's name and, and used it as a nickname. Yeah, certainly. Well, I, I call uh, Leon Roy, so that, that came from Leon Baker and then Roy Baker out of Cop Shop, so um, my nickname <laughs> for Leon Cameron is Roy, so that, yeah, that's where that one came from. You mentioned your back problems uh, before you even got to the doggies, so uh, you had back and hamstring problems, sort of dogged your career, didn't it, during your, your days at the doggies? Oh, absolutely. Like towards, Especially towards the, the latter end of my career, you can only train at three-quarter pace, you, you know you're going to break down if you go that extra step, and even my last game of the club was five games before the end of the season and I ripped the beauty at uh, the MCG against Collingwood and so it was basically my career done and it just, I would hate to think how many times, even later in life, how many times I've ripped my hammies. I think the number would be up probably a hundred times in each league. I would have torn a hamstring, I would, I would imagine, somewhere like that. Oh, goodness me. Is it a genetic thing, Mark, or is it just something that you, just the way or the way your body sort of works? I don't know. I had... I think I did my first hamstring at 17, then had stress fractures in the back. Whether that was related or not, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I had really good sit and reach, so it certainly wasn't a flexibility thing. Lockie's the complete opposite. He he can't even touch his toes, but he's never, never ever done a hamstring, thank goodness. So, yeah, I don't know. I think the science this day, at this day and age, would have a far better idea than what we had back then. It was just, uh, you know, myself and Steve Kreuk seemed to really struggle with uh, soft tissue injuries. Matty Croft, there's a few of us down there that just couldn't quite string them together. Yeah, if that happened, if that sort of thing happened with those three high-profile players that you know yourself and uh, Crusher and Crofty you just mentioned, there'd be a there'd be a back-page story on it these days. Well, you know, I talked to Lockie about like players seem to do a calf and they can still play the game, or they've slightly done a hamstring, and they can still play the game. It's it's just incredible. If I had the slightest niggle, I you know I, I know that I wouldn't get through the game. And the research now, and they're just far far better placed. You don't see that many chronic hamstring problems these days like, like we used to have back in the day. Fortunately, that's the case. Now, you mentioned Lockie. Uh, these days, of course, you're known as uh, as father of Lockie, not Mark Hunter at all, who played 130 games and had a very good career of his own. You're just, you're just Lockie's dad. That's it. Lockie's dad. No longer got a first name, Kev. That's uh, <laughs> LD, Lockie's dad. <laughs> you must, I know you coached him coming up through the, the ranks at, at Williamstown uh, in the juniors, and he had a lot to do with his, his, the younger part of his footy. But it must be really gratifying for you to see uh, what, a, what a fine young footballer and a fine young man he's turned out to be. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like, as you say, I coached him pretty much all the way through from under nine through to when the Western Jets took over, or, or school footy as well, when St Kevin's took over, and Seen him come right through, and you same thing. You just you know you hope they play one game, or hope they if they don't play a game, get the best out of themselves. And you know I remember back to his first game, and just hoping he got a kick on the night. It turned out to be a pretty good night. He's obviously gone on to play the hundred games, uh, best and fairest, and play in the premiership. So oh, I love it. I sit there and go to the footy. I don't. I never miss a game. I go and watch every game, and I just love it now. It's a little bit more relaxing than it was in the early days. He seems to you know play pretty well most weeks. So sit there and enjoy it. And yeah, I don't want it to end. What about the? Uh, I mean, the, do you ride every bumper? You that sort of dad who sits there and just sort of watches your own kid. I, I mean, I know you're a footy nut in terms of you love your footy, but do you just watch Lockie or do you watch the game or how do you how do you view it? I always watch. I always watch where he is and where he's running. And you know, I remember the night he got concussion when I think Lindsay Thomas said, and I did, I couldn't see the pack. I didn't know who it was on the ground, and I looked out and. And there was Lockie sort of half knocked out on the ground. So you 
you certainly do ride every bump with them. Always the same, you know, you just hope they get up off the off the bottom of the pack, of course, and hope they no no bad luck or no bad injuries or anything come their way. And I watch him. I certainly I watch him a lot more than I watch the whole game. Yeah. Um, well, what did the premiership mean to you? Premiership was a it was an amazing month. Uh, just an amazing month of you know over to Perth against all the odds and then back and beat the Hawks and the GWS game. I think was the highlight of the month, even though we won the. Premiership, the GWS game is the one where you see the whole bay was just in tears. The absolute whole bay was in tears yeah. uh, when that final siren went. That was a, an amazing experience. And grand final day, I thought they might have been worn out. And you, you go and watch training and they just bounced out on the track like little two-year-old kids all over the joint. And I thought, gee, these kids are going to be all right here. And, and uh, yeah, you may never get another chance in life to play in a, in a winning premiership. So... Um, Rap, they took their chance to do it and succeed, and um, Rap Lockie was part of it. It was fantastic. The other passion that you share with Lockie is, uh, and that you obviously are very good at, is your love of horses and ability to pick winners and stuff. Uh, did he just pick that up naturally from you? Oh, no, he's the worst hunter in the world, Lockie. He's actually he's given the punt. <laughs> he's very, very good at owning them, but uh, no, he's no good on the punt, so he's given that away. So he, uh, no, he, always, he didn't have much choice at home. The Sky Channel was on pretty much all day, every day, and and going through high school and that, I'd often I'd be sitting at home watching my account and I'd just notice little bits and pieces to get deducted out of the account. So I'm <laughs> not sure how he was spending his afternoon, but I'm sure he had something to do with it. Where did where did your love of the horses come from, Mark? My mum's side of the family, there were uh, four or five brothers there that were right into it. So, And we lived next door in early days in Glenroy. So um, I would spend all the time in, in their place and my grandpa used to have the radio on all the day and then, you know, they'd be down putting their daily doubles on So. It was it was a real sporting house, football, cricket, horse racing. So that that's where I that's where I got involved way back then. So when did you t- take it from being just something that you liked to do and an interest that you had, and uh, you know having the odd punt here and there, to to the the skill level and the uh, the intense, uh, uh, I guess, uh, form analysis that you've taken it to these days. Well, my first sponsor at the football club was David Price. Oh, and God me. So, <laughs> what hope so did you was, have? <laughs> no, that's right. Well, I was an emergency primary school teacher at the time, so I would work sort of three days a week teaching and then go to David's place for two days and watch the races, have a few bets, and then slowly David got me to do a little bit of work and then a bit more. And then when David moved over to Hong Kong, I think something like 20, I don't know, 28 years ago or something like that, um, I sort of moved up the ladder and, yeah, took it on, took it on more full-time and, it's just developed from there. So, what are, what are the mug what what do mug punters do wrong? What what's the one tip you give a mug punter about uh, about punting? Given that we've got a massive week, uh, you know, with the cup and uh, all that coming up, and everyone has a bit of a bet. What what would you say? Don't do that. Don't uh, well, certainly bet within your means. Yep. Certainly bet within your means. Don't get chasing. If you if you lose you lose all your money by race three, don't chase it with with money you haven't got. Uh, don't combine drinking and punting. We've all done that over the years, and I've never known that to work. Yes, exactly. Um, and just try and work out, say you've got a budget of $10 or $100, set yourself down at the start of the day and work out, okay, how can I turn this 100 into 200 or something like that? What's my best plan of attack to do that? Rather than just going from screen to screen, betting on Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, Brisbane, uh, you've got no hope if you're betting on uh, venues all around the globe. That uh, that 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 thrill that you get when your horse goes past the line, whether it wins by an inch or whether it wins by you know four and a half lengths or whatever, um, are you, you still got that uh, charging through your body? And you had a terrific experience recently with Super Seth. 
Yeah, I have. It's, uh, yeah, we spent the day on Saturday at the Cox Plate with probably a few too many under my belt. But, um, yeah, you have a bet and you, it hits, you see it looming up and everyone starts cheering. You watch the reaction of the crowd and that certainly doesn't go away. No, that's, that's there forever. And when, you know, Super Seth was great, owning your own horse and same as Merchant Navy, just getting up right on the line to win those big races. Uh, you couldn't script it any better, really, from an owner's point of view. Yeah, it was a, it was a hell of a race too, wasn't it? It was great. The, um, I was standing down at ground level and I mustn't have had the best angle because I thought he won pretty comfortably. And then when the photo went up and I realised how close it was, I uh, I got quite a, a relief there. But um, yeah, from where I was watching, I, I thought he... I thought he won pretty comfortably, so I was never really worried by the photo until I saw it go up on the screen. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss sometimes, isn't it? That's it, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> uh, what do you like in the cup? What are you, what's your early early thoughts on the cup? I like the horse called Il Paradiso for a little while. I think Aidan O'Brien, he, I think he knows the right horse to bring out here now, and it's just it's got him that beautiful winning weight that horses seem to get in with. It stays the thirty two hundred metres well. Uh, the last run wasn't so good, but it's a better horse than that, and I'm sure it would have been aimed for this race. So, I think it's around the fifteen or sixteen dollar mark, and that's the one. That's the horse I've been backing along the way, so that's the one I'm following. Uh, you like the international flavour of the horses uh, in terms of uh, it's very heavily weighted internationally uh, these days. So, would you like to see us start to try and breed? And you, obviously, you mentioned uh, David Price, and uh, he's a bloodstock breeder. But are we going to start to breed uh, stayers in this country, or have we just sort of said, "No, nah, we'll just stay with the sprinters and we'll bring the other ones in"? Well, there's such big money in the sprinting. If you get, you know, not so much super set, but you get, say, a Merchant Navy, it, it's, a, it's just a huge result if you can get one of those Colts to win the Coolmore Stakes. So yep. that's where the money and the quick return, they can retire at three um, and, you know, it can set, set you up for life if you're in the right horse. The stayers, there's no doubt, I love the internationals. I love them coming over. They're the best stayers in the world. They come over here and and I think we're, we're probably at the point where we're going to buy you know, we're shopping over there to get them over here early, let them acclimatise. That's our best chance that I see. Although this year we've got Surprise Baby and Vow and Declare, locals who are in the chances. But I think yeah, more and more people are getting the overseas horses, buying them, bringing them over here. And that's their method of trying to win the Melbourne Cup now. And how good are the Japanese horses? Yeah, they're stars. You saw the Caulfield Cup one win, Murder Glass, and then you, I just knew, if you've seen Lee's for sure, how much better it was again. And it just powered past them in the Cox Plate. They're, they're really strong, tough stayers, and they're, they're, they're certainly world-class horses. Well, it's great catching up with you, mate, having a chat about the horses and about Lockie and about, of course, that uh, famous day, 4th of April, 1988, Waverley Park, when the Doggies had to win 16-6-102 to, uh, to Sydney, 11-10-76. You made your, your debut on that, uh, on that day wearing the famous number 44. Uh, uh, Mark Hunter, thanks for joining us, mate. It's been a real pleasure to have a chat. 